So good morning. So we're just going to start our, our series again this morning. This is a summer series we're going to be doing in Luke. And it's the topic of discipleship, dynamic discipleship in Luke. And Rob's introduced it last week. Uh, this is a series where uh, we're going to be on a, a journey. Um, it's a journey through Luke. And we're going to be looking first off in the first half a little bit about who Jesus was, who was he, and what was his kingdom like. And then up to chapter 9, that's about who he is. We're going to move on and look at Jesus' call to discipleship as his disciples journey with him. Uh, We're in the first half at the moment, uh, and then we're going to go on a journey in the second half as the disciples travel with him and then beyond. And uh, just to give you an outline this morning... Um, we're going to be talking first about the men. That's Luke, uh, a doctor and a historian, but of course Jesus the healer who he writes about. Encouraging this morning, just as we've been praying for healing and people have had words of healing, it is just tremendous and exciting to dig into this topic. So we're going to do that this morning. I want to look at their methods, Jesus' miracles, the healer, What were they about? And I want to finish with three models, very practically, how we can just understand healing and how that applies today. So that's a lot. I'm going to honor your time, and I'm going to go fairly fast. Uh, Hopefully we'll finish on time and have some time for prayer at the end. Uh, So I'm going to start reading from Luke 5, 12 to 25. One day Jesus was teaching... And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat, through the tiles to the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So when my parents were first married, they bought a Victorian house. It was a wreck down on the coast, a big wreck. 
Uh, the cellar was big and it can best be described as filling up with wastewater because the plumbing was bad. Um, you can just imagine that. Uh, but in the loft, it was it was free gift, came with the house, it was filled with junk. And uh, it, my parents, one day were clearing this out and they found a suitcase and in it there was loads of papers, a journal, there's a sketchbook. Uh, it's like a cache of documents. And... Uh, it's taken a lot of years to go through this. My mum spent a lot of time uh, researching, just trying to understand it in her spare time. Uh, she's actually, with the advent of the internet more recently, it's become easier, and actually took a trip to Sotheby's to investigate. I've seen these documents, I've, I've looked through them and, and read them, really, really amazing. And uh, the, the problem is, and Sotheby's actually said this, uh, a valuer and an auctioneer, uh, an expert in Sotheby's, he said, the problem is that they're not complete. They're an amazing collection, but we don't know the real story. It's as if we lost the, the main part of the story. And uh, through time, my mum has managed to put together what was going on, uh, a sketchbook, bits of a journal, papers, an autograph book, these beautiful paintings of flowers, incredible paintings. But what it is, is the journal of a man who was a colonel in the British army during the mutiny in India. So there's an incredible historic context that you need to understand what you have when you're reading these documents. And as we open Luke, uh, you can really understand New Testament theology by reading Paul. Paul is a, a key writer. He fills in theology. But a bit like these documents my mum found, if you only had the letters of Paul and the theology of Paul, even if you had just uh, the other Gospels, you would actually be missing the real story, the context of what's going on. Luke, you might think, is the main author of the New Testament. No, wrong. Luke is, not Paul. Luke writes 23, sorry, Paul writes 23, Luke is 27%. So you can see how Luke, and I'm including Acts here, Luke is actually a massive contributor to our understanding of Jesus' life and theology as we have it in the New Testament and under the New Covenant. So I want to just fill in for a few minutes a little bit about this because I think in an age where liberal interpretations can erode sometimes our, our understanding of Scripture, I just want to show you what a tremendous book this is. And I really urge you this summer to just go through it, read it. Don't stop at the end of Luke, carry on into Acts if you want. It's, con it's completely continuous. Um, because Luke is an incredible book historically. If you open the first chapter, the first verses, um, he describes it as an eyewitness account. He is a historical researcher. He's researching. And the level of detail that Luke injects into his writing is extraordinary. In, and I'm including Acts in this when I give you some numbers. There are 117 people, 114 provinces, islands, seas, and identifiable places, 25 political, military, and social and religious events known to history, and every one of those you can cross-reference. You can actually go and research it and find the place, 
or the situation. Tiny example, strange detail. In Acts 9.11, Luke will say something like Judas, who lives in Damascus on a straight street. And you can go now and walk down that straight street. It's a very famous, well-known street. So Luke's account has a phenomenal historicity. Some years back, William Ramsey, Sir William Ramsey, is an atheist, went to disprove this book, particularly Acts through archaeology. He was knighted in the end for his services, and he concluded after a lifetime of research, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. You're dealing with a dependable historian. And Luke and Paul are very close. If they're the weight of the New Testament story that you're reading, they corroborate each other. So much so that um, Acts, Luke is switching between we and he. He, Paul, and then we. Because Luke journeys with Paul. He witnesses what's going on. He is part of that uh, amazing, explosive work of the Holy Spirit in birthing the church. Paul refers to him in Philippians verse 24. He refers to him in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me in his desperate times. And of course, in Colossians 4.14, Rob said it last week, my dear friend Luke, the doctor, is what Paul writes. Luke is sleeves rolled up, and he is in the pain and challenge of treating sickness. And time out, possibly Paul's physician. So, what's the internal evidence of this aspect of Luke the doctor? Well, when you get into, again, the historicity and and looking at the text from a more academic perspective, there is phenomenal detail in the actual words that Luke writes. Not only is Luke's grammar and his Greek far superior to any of the other writers, It has a level of vocabulary that you don't see anywhere else. He is a highly educated man. Uh, He actually uses the language of disease. It's suffused with the detail of disease and the diagnosis. Mark says, Simon's wife's mother, this is Mark 1.30, she's sick of a fever. She's got a temperature. But Luke, he goes in 4.38... Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, using two words, two medical words that you can find in other writings of the time, external evidence. Mark 1.40, we read, there came a leper. Mark's like, there's a leper. But Luke says, a man full of leprosy. It's a, a diagnosis of condition, telling us how severe the case was. Acts 3.2 He says it's not just a lame man, but it's a connotation of lame from birth, congenital. And it even gets graphic. It's not lunch yet, but Acts 28, when he talks about the healing of Publius' father from dysentery, it's a bloody flux. Medical language. It's a bit gritty. It's not nice. And Luke is a tremendous chronicler of miracles. 35 miracles of Jesus, 26 healing, including raising to life. Luke has the most of any writer we have, 21 in total in his gospel, including all three raising from the dead. 
And it doesn't stop because even after Jesus departs, after his ascension, you see how in Luke, in the Acts, so this is Luke writing again, he records 18 further miracles, six by Peter and Paul, including multitudes in Acts 19. We don't even know how many healings there were by the apostles after Jesus left, including Acts 28, 7, 9, I referred to it, Publius and others. Luke has a lot to say about health and healing. So I hope I just impressed upon you as we you look at this book and we look at this topic of healing, that there is a phenomenal historicity here, that we're not dealing with sort of supernatural events in a wishy-washy book. This is categorically a historical account, absolutely factual. You cannot get better from a gospel book or even a biblical account. And the dismissal of Luke academically is simply simply because this supernatural content, including the use of angels and demons, cannot be treated historically, obviously. Unless, unless. How do you view that? Make your mind up. So let's pull this thread a little bit. Luke, the doctor, writing about Jesus, the healer. The physician writing about a miracle healer. So what about method? Let's just remember Luke, meticulous, detail-orientated, a careful chronicler of Jesus' work. He's got this eye of a, a keen physician, ready to learn more about the art of healing and apply that in his profession to know the methods of a master healer. Systematic, he should be, but there's not much of a formula. Sometimes he's recording a touch. Sometimes it's a word. We've had words this morning. Sometimes he touches them. Sometimes they touch Jesus. Often Jesus has a word and a touch from close by, but sometimes, like the centurion, it's from a distance. Sometimes Jesus uses spit and mud, sometimes washing. Sometimes it's in privacy, away from a crowd. Sometimes it's frequently, in fact, in crowds and public. And sometimes it's someone who's worthy. The Jews said that the centurion was worthy, but so often it's an outcast who Jesus restores back to community. So if Luke is bringing down illness into specific, precise indications, labelled symptoms, grouping and categorising, diagnosing. It's really interesting to see how Jesus treats the condition. Because Jesus doesn't really address disease so much as Jesus addresses a person. Jesus doesn't look at disease like a topical medication. He just has this huge picture of speaking into somebody's life. So what is the purpose of Jesus' healing? What are we learning from that? Because Jesus' healings are not actually really about healing per se. They're about him. You see, Luke wants a medication maybe, but Jesus is the cure. 
Jesus is the method. Jesus is the cure. And Jesus' healings are really about his triumph. Jesus wants to display to us a huge triumph on earth. If he has come to destroy sin and death on this earth, then Jesus wants to show that. It's a power and a triumph that Jesus wants to show that he has won. And we're slow, I think, sometimes to recognize the dumas, the mightiness, the mighty dynamic power that Jesus has sown on this earth. It's interesting in Luke 8:28 when we see a demon-possessed man alienated from his community, abusive behavior towards himself, cast away on his own that the first to recognize with shrieks of shock and horror the power of Jesus is the demonic force that binds this man. They did not expect the phenomenal power of Jesus on earth. The demon shrieks because they did not expect Jesus, the Son of God. They thought that the earthly domain and the domain they had control of in this man was safe. But God broke down right into the situation through the power of his son placed on earth. And it caught the devil and the demonic powers in the spiritual realm completely unaware. That is why they were so surprised in that account. So healing is about a shocking power and authority that Jesus brings into life and into this world. And Luke records this. If you think about a historical book, it's amazing to read of power, dunamis, dynamism, this word dynamic, and power are, are very similar, very closely related. Dunamis, dynamism, is what this word power means. Luke 6.19, all of the multitudes sought to touch him, for power came forth from him and healed them all. And Luke 5.17, and the power, the dunamis, the dynamic healing power of the Lord was with him, to heal. And if we want to understand the kingdom, the kingdom came with a manifesto. What was God going to do? What's this new kingdom that he ushers in? Then in 4:18 to 21, when Jesus reads the manifesto of his kingdom and prophesies of himself, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to declare the year of the Lord's favour. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, genomics, digital health, they can pinpoint flaws in our body. They can profile your biological makeup, 
They can diagnose your body's self-destructive traits. And then your smartphone and your watch can quantify yourself, your health. You can engineer it. And you can diagnose disease at this trivial level of a, a, a tiny fault in your genome, from organ to cell to DNA mutation. But you can't escape a fate that we're all going to face. And if medicine begins to kind of try and link all these things together, your health, your wholeness, uh, from your family genetics to your daily step count, your ECG monitoring wristwatch, number of biscuits before lunch and five portions of fruit and veg, your sociology and circumstance, sadly it's a great predictor of wealth where you live and therefore health, but if medicine begins to start to take into account something of the wholeness of who you are, Jesus knew it first. Jesus never bothered to treat disease specifically. He just wanted to treat the whole of who you were and the whole of who you are. He speaks to wholeness. He doesn't speak to an arm. He speaks to a person. He doesn't speak to legs. He speaks to the sin in people's lives. Jesus makes no distinction between the person and their specific physical state and their spiritual state. They are deeply interconnected. In dealing with the crippled man we read this morning, Jesus simply says this, he makes no distinction between sickness and sin. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And the crippled man responds, not with condemnation of the sin in his life, but in recognition simply of Jesus' work and what Jesus has done. He rejoices in thanksgiving. I think we can reduce bits of Jesus' work down to formulaic ways of things, of doing things, the ways to receive. But Jesus just wants to expand our gaze to something so big and so great. We want to know sometimes how we can get our busted foot muscle fixed so we can run again. That's me, last year anyway. It's the worst thing that happened to me, thankfully. But God wants to teach us something about sin and redemption. It's not that we dismiss healing. It's tremendous when we experience and see that in our community, and we must, must seek it. But his miracles of healing are not just about us and our problems. They're about his solution for the world, something really big. It's about an end to the dominance of sin and suffering in a really broken world. To be a disciple of the master healer is to receive complete treatment for a bigger disease. Luke 4.18 again. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to give sight to the blind. Cancellation of the effects of sin in our lives. Release. Provision of life. Benefits of grace in your life. Freedom and healing. And actually, if you go into the Old Testament, it's completely consistent. 
There's no easy way for me to explain the words and connotation of physical health in old or new. I can't. I can't do it. I tried when I prepared. Because the Hebrew expands it to a really big picture. In the Old Testament, there's not really a concept of health. It doesn't really talk about your physical, just your body health. It doesn't really talk about it a lot. Instead, the Old Testament and the New, like Jesus does, speaks of a complete wholeness of the man and the person. Health is about the wholeness of man's being, his personality, everything together, wrapped up in the holiness of his character, his actions, and that expressed in his righteousness and obedience to God's law. The best way to understand health in the Old Testament, and this is resting on scholars you can read, is actually the word shalom. The word we associate with peace, but means so much more. Psalm 29:11. The Lord blesses his people with shalom. Shalom, totality and completeness of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing. Completeness, wholeness. And if you want law, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom. Tim Keller says this, it, shalom, means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. Wouldn't we love to see that totality of healing in our community, in our own lives, in our life groups, and in the world beyond? And I want to just pick one other healing that really speaks to this physical and mental health really intertwined. Uh, It's a passage I found quite moving when I understood it more and I'm just going to read it. I could have picked a passage about uh, a dramatic healing like like the epileptic boy and Jesus casts out a demon and does these dramatic things, cures him of a possession but I want to just dig into Luke 13. It's a very small miracle that Jesus do that Luke records, verses 10 to 17 of Luke 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. 
indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there's six days for work, so come and be healed on those six days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered and said, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath loose or untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 long years, be loosed and set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? This word cripple is in the New King James, I bent over. It says in no way could she raise herself up. She can't lift herself. It's got connotations of, of bowing down forwards, of humility, of mourning. This is a woman whose life is to stare at the dust of the ground. She can't gaze up and beyond just this small circumstance. She's locked there. Her vision of life is just reduced down to just what she can cope with and handle in that moment, the area around her, locked in her suffering, consumed by contemplation of what's possibly a really painful, just degenerating condition. And the spirit of weakness, actually, this phrase, Satan has bound, there's no real context here of the demonic. It's not really there at all. She's familiar to the temple, not like the outcast demoniacs. And the cure is not this command and voice of Jesus commanding out a demon. He just calls her to her and gives her a touch, a healing. And the cure is, is not like an exorcism. It's just his touch. John Wilkinson's commentary said that, that of her condition... The result of long years of physical weakness were a state of profound mental depression. Led on the physical was all of the emotional. And what is the healer's cure? The profound call of Jesus on her life to come to him in verse 11, come to me. He called her forward and she understood who he was. She had to experience calling, compassion, and physical touch. And it brought instant, complete transformation and healing, complete wholeness. Here, her response is the up, to lift up her head and praise. The back is gone. She lifts up. And if we go back into other passages, you see again, say like Simon's mother-in-law, who we mentioned earlier, alienated and isolated by her illness in, an, in a, a room enclosed. We see again how Jesus just restores into community. Instantly, she got up at once and began to wait on them, serving Jesus. So as we finish, I want to just give you three very practical models of healing in the church today. The first model, healing in creation. It's a beautiful picture to think of man as placed in a garden. We were made for a garden. A garden that over time has been used to unlock amazing medical breakthroughs. Plant-derived healing remedies, medication. God's gift in the garden in creation was for agents that can help the body in the self-healing 
as long as they're not abused, mind and body. You see in the garden the first model of healing. It's not mystical. It's very practical. We pray for those who serve diligently in healthcare. We pray for those who are being cared for by the healthcare system. In Luke 10, Jesus, talking in the parable of the Good Samaritan, talks of pouring in the oil and wine, the care and compassion on someone who is ill. Bandages, antiseptic wine, healing oil, like a salve. We see it, Paul writing to Timothy, a man who's done remarkable healing, encourages Timothy, I'm sure he's praying for him, but a little wine for your health, his condition, maybe this chronic dyspepsia, some commentators say. He has a health issue. And Paul encourages him to take the medicine. We see here in the first model, healing in creation as man's gift in the creation to learn and understand how to aid the body in healing. And as our reserves weaken, our physical strength hits limits. Compassion can be eroded by exhaustion if we're serving. I think it's so good to remember how Jesus took that time out to refresh and renew his own strength in healing. Luke 5.16 says, Yet the news spread about him all the more. Crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, accessing the power and authority of his Father in renewal and prayer. He knew the greater mission and greater purpose that he was called to. And how much do we sometimes need to take that renewal and refreshing ourselves as we serve others? Model two, healing in redemption. You see, the body's got limits. Healing has limits. Medicine fails. Limited knowledge, limited by death. In some ways, maybe if you think about the garden, man's body wasn't designed to face this catastrophic impact of ejection from the garden into this brutal world, a broken, hostile, fallen world. But in healing, Jesus didn't just reveal something of himself to follow. He gave us something of his kingdom we hope for. So we don't... We don't abandon the first model. There's no scriptural basis for abandoning the first model. We use practical healing, like food to sustain us, practical wisdom, what we eat, our health. But we also hope for so much more. We're just so aware of our limits and the limits of what we have around us. But we so hope for the breakthrough of the miraculous. In the medical literature... I searched this. I literally spent some time on this. There are actually many evidences of spontaneous and unexplained remission. Documented. You can go and read them. Sickness can reverse and suddenly healing comes. How much more, if it's possible in the physical, is that possible in the spiritual? How much with the dumas, the mighty power we have... Is there, therefore, the ability for the miracles to break through into this earth, into our church? Aeneas in Acts 9.32, 
He was not a man who had a psychosomatic condition. It was not in his head that he couldn't walk. Because if it wasn't, he hadn't walked for that long. How were wasted muscles suddenly able to pick up his bed and walk? Four men carried him. He carried his bed home on strong working muscles. A miracle. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. Encourage us in our view that the working of miracles and the gifts of healing are available for the church today. There is not a limit there. I don't know that we really fully understand that. So why don't we see more? C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, he wrote that God can and does, on occasions, modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles as part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands these conditions are extremely rare. But the kingdom is all about this bigger context, the huge bigger context of hope that we have. The third model. What happens when healing doesn't come? Prayer is not answered. Do we doubt God's providence? I'm going to lean heavily on three things here. Pete Grieg in his uh, book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. Uh, He's the author of the 24-7 or involved in the 24-7 prayer movement. He's quoting Johnny Erickson Tata, who was tragically uh, broke her spine at a very young age and lived with the consequences of that. She writes, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Different interpretations in 2 Corinthians 12.7 of Paul's thorn in the flesh. I don't have time to pick it apart. Make of it what you will. But Paul seemingly writes a physical affliction. He prays for relief. Sees none. Prays three times. Wouldn't you pray more? Three times? Really? He says this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my dunamis, my dynamism, God's almighty dynamic power is made perfect in weakness. And I wanted to just keep looking at this issue. We were talking in Life Brief. Someone recommended this book, Mark Maynell, the author, When Darkness is My Closest Friend. It's a really interesting book. I've just started reading it. I've been diving through it quickly to get it done before this, but I didn't finish it. He writes of being uh, a pastor for many years, but battling severe depression. And he writes, leaders who limp are those who are weak and they know it, but they're not threatened by it. They have no alternative but to trust God. They know they cannot manage on their own. They simply don't have it in them. And yet still they lead and they thrive. For that, only God can take the benefit. He calls it the trajectory of shalom. Wholeness. Christian theology is not complete without a theology of suffering. It's right there through to the cross, the garden where Jesus wrestled for the future of man, for the wholeness of man, and the garden where Jesus died on the cross 
And the garden where he rose again, and Mary found him, mistaking him from a gardener, walking in the garden. The third model supplements the first and the second. A peculiar power available for his disciples to triumph in adversity, overcome and be victorious, even in physical weakness and pain. And Keller writes this, Tim Keller, Unless delighting Jesus, resembling him, serving him, and knowing him is your highest priority, the healing power of the kingdom of God will not flow through you. You will not be a useful vehicle for it. Jesus is the perfect counselor. We're going to wrap up. I would just really encourage those that had words and, and those that love prayer. I just really encourage you just to come and ask people to pray for you. It's so scriptural to pray as a group, as corporately. It's not one person that has this gift. And I don't know what model we're going to see as we are discipled by him. But let's just pray for complete wholeness and healing in our lives and for those around us. Let's remember this week in our life groups, those who are sick, those who are not well, who need wholeness in their lives in whatever way. So I'm going to pray for us and pray for them. Father, we pray by your almighty dynamic power, your dunamis, for your healing in your church. I pray for all those who serve in any and every capacity in healthcare for the gift and skill and ability to bring hope and healing and suffering. I pray for strength for those in suffering, your power to overcome discomfort and pain of every and any kind that so depletes and destroys our sense of joy. I just pray for your miraculous healing on those who ask and call to you. I pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you his shalom, his wholeness in every way, emotionally, physically, in healing. And Philippians 4.9 And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>